Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. You may have anticipated that some letters of the alphabet were going to be more of a challenge for me than others. You were right, and Q is one of those. There are no characters in the Bible whose names start with Q. There are no books whose names start with Q. But, as you probably noticed when you saw the title of this episode, the letter Q is, in fact, what we're going to talk about. Well, okay, not exactly. I'll explain. Here's what we're going to do in this episode. I'm going to take you down a hall and open a door and show you what's in the room. I think you'll be surprised. I was certainly surprised when I came across this as a young Bible college student. had no idea that this room existed. I don't expect that you will ever go in the room. I just want you to know that it's there, that there are people doing this kind of work. And then at the end, we're going to ask the question, what does what's behind door number six have to do with me and how I view the Bible? Because that's the part that I think is significant. So bear with me. I'm going to show you something at least that's my goal, is to explain something that's been going on for, what, 150 years, and then we'll look at its relevance for how we understand the Bible. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, much of the scholarship, much of the study going on in the area of, of the Bible and theology was happening in Germany. German scholars were, were thinking about things that, frankly, nobody else was. Nobody had up until that point, and nobody else was. And once they sort of laid the foundation for this kind of Bible study slash research, um, others took it up and, and ran with it. And, in fact, it became a dominant theme in evangelicalism. And that word I put in air quotes because, in this case, I'm not sure... That word fits. But in Germany, like I said, end of the 1800s, early 1900s, some German Bible scholars began to look at the Gospels more critically. And by critical, I don't mean, hey, that's an ugly dress. I mean critical like a movie critic. They began to look at the Gospels and, uh, and notice some of their specific features and analyze those the way a movie critic watches a movie. You and I go for entertainment. They look at all kinds of things, cinematography and so forth. Okay, These guys decided to do that with the Gospels. You're probably aware of the fact that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics. That is a word that means literally sin, the same as in synonym, and optics, to look. The, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke look. Say that three times fast. At the same things from Jesus's three-year public ministry, John looks at entirely different things. He's sort of out there by himself, and he explains at the end of his gospel why he has chosen the events and the sayings that he did. But we're not going to go there now. What we're going to observe as these guys did, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptics. They largely look at the same things that Jesus said and the same things that Jesus did. However, there are some differences between them. And these guys decided 
that they were going to look critically, closely, analytically at the similarities and differences. And when they did that, they ended up with what's called, here's our first term, the synoptic problem. And that became a key term in the study of the Gospels. The synoptic problem is how do we explain the pattern of similarities and differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I said they're synoptics. They look at the same stuff, and they largely do. That said, you know what? In some ways, the differences are as striking as the similarities. Three guys that wrote over several decades in three very different geographical areas came up with gospels, with accounts of Christ's public ministry that have a pattern of similarities and differences. For example, when you read Mark's gospel, you you will probably notice that there are no parables. In fact, there are no teaching sections like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse, or like I said, these parables Mark's gospel is one of action. His favorite word is immediately that occurs, I don't know, something like 20 times in his gospel. He says, Jesus did this, for example, turning the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. That's an action, huh? In in biblical studies, that's called a narrative. It is the telling of something that Jesus did. And then he'll say, and immediately he, and go on to the next thing. And after he's told that, Uh, narrative, and immediately Jesus went, and that's how Matthew's, uh, I'm sorry, that's how Mark's gospel moves. Very quickly, from one narrative, one action thing, to the next. No teaching blocks. In Matthew and Luke, you get narratives, but you also get what are called sayings. And and that's just the term that they use for teaching and uh, dialogue. For example, uh, in, in In John's gospel, now I'm going outside the synoptics, but you get the discussion between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus or Jesus and the Samaritan woman. If you took that and put it back in the synoptics, that would be called sayings material, Sermon on the Mount, Olivet Discourse, all of the parables. These are called sayings material. And in Matthew and Luke, you get both narrative and sayings. Now let's take, they said, now let's take a critical and analytical look at the pattern of similarities and differences. And what they noticed is that Matthew and Luke, it's almost like they were using Mark because some, oftentimes the very wording is the same. And you're saying, well, yeah, but why do you say that Matthew used Mark instead of Matthew used Luke, or that Luke didn't use Matthew, or that Mark didn't use Luke, and so forth. Here's why. 90% of Mark's material can be found in Matthew and Luke. Sometimes Matthew and Mark will agree, and Luke will be the outlier. And by that, I mean maybe the chronology will be a little different. The words will be a little different. The people who are mentioned as being present will be a little different. Sometimes Matthew and Mark will agree and Luke will have some variation, include something that isn't in the others. Sometimes 
Mark and Luke will agree, and Matthew will be the outlier. But it never happens that Matthew and Luke agree, and Mark is the odd man out. That is striking. That is just like head-scratcher. Mark is the common denominator in narrative material. And that struck them as very significant. Okay, now at this point, I want you to go, if you, if you can please, go to the Facebook page for Alphabet Soup. I, I don't know. I mean, just type Alphabet Soup into the search bar. And, and there may be, I don't know if Campbell's has an entry there or not, but eventually you'll see this our logo. You've seen it before. Um, and you go to our website because on our um, Facebook page, our Alphabet Soup Facebook page, I have put a very simplified diagram of what we're talking about here. Simplified in ways that I'll explain in a minute or two. But what we seem to have, these German scholars said, is a situation in which Matthew and Luke use Mark's narrative, the record of the narratives, as their basis for writing their own narrative sections. The the, uh, synoptic problem is how do we explain the pattern of similarities and differences between the synoptic gospels? And the answer for the similarities is that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel. That when they sat down to write theirs, they had in front of them, if not if not literally, at least they had read it and were thoroughly familiar with Mark's gospel. So the answer to the synoptic problem is, here's our second term, what's called the document, I'm sorry, what's called source criticism. And again, the word criticism is not used as a negative term, pejorative. It's used to, to describe a very careful, precise, analytical look. And the answer to the synoptic problem is looking at the sources that were used for each of these Gospels. We haven't talked about what Mark used for his source, how he got his narrative material. We'll do that closer to the end. But that for their narrative material, Matthew and Luke used Mark. And that explains the pattern of similarities and, to a certain extent, the pattern of differences between Matthew and Luke. Because sometimes Matthew deviates from Mark. Luke doesn't, so they're going to agree, but Matthew does. Or sometimes Luke will deviate from Mark, so he'll he'll be the outlier. Uh, But again, Matthew and Luke never agree against Mark. Um, I have a more complicated diagram, uh, perhaps a more complete diagram of source criticism and its outcomes. But frankly, if I'd put that on the Facebook page, you'd look at it and your eyes would glaze over. And so I didn't. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain some of it to you. Both Matthew and Luke have narrative and sayings. I said saying. Sometimes it's also called discourse. Hmm? Both Matthew and Luke have sayings material and discourse material. Matthew has 46% sayings. I'm sorry, 46% narrative, which he draws from Mark's gospel. 
46% in Matthew. Luke has 41%, very close, 41% narrative. He draws it from Mark's gospel. Mark is the common source, this theory says, um, for the narrative material in Luke and Matthew. Matthew has 20% of his material that's unique to him. Luke has 23% of his material that's unique to him. But Matthew and Luke have 24% and 35% respectively that is shared between them, and that's sayings material or discourse. So again, we're talking source criticism. We've talked about the synoptic problem. How do we explain the pattern of similarities and differences? And that led these guys to what's now called source criticism, thinking, where did they, these three writers get their material? What was their source or what were their sources? And the answer is, Mark was the source for the narrative material for reasons we've just explained. What was the source for their discourse for their sayings material, because because Luke and Matthew agree a lot of the time. They agree like almost 20, 30% of the time they agree in their sayings material. And by agreement, I mean what was said, sometimes down down to the very words. Who said it? Who was present when it was said? And how much they record. Now, for example, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is much longer than it is in Luke. Um, The Lord's Prayer, uh, again, you see this is sayings, this is discourse material. The Lord's Prayer is slightly different in Matthew than it is in Luke. Neither of those things occur at all in Mark, because Mark is all narrative. But when these, the the Olivet Discourse occurs in both. However, Matthew's is a little longer, has a little more detail. That said, They largely agree in what they both have. Matthew has more. But when Matthew and Luke have the same, it is just the same. Often, down to the very words and the way that it is uh, put together, the order in which it is said. How do we explain that pattern of similarities? And the answer is, you ready? Q. And in this case, Q is an abbreviation for a German word, quella. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled Q-U-E-L-L-E. And I don't know any German except a couple of words and a couple of phrases that I learned from my dad because he studied German in college and he used to say them from time to time. So I may be pronouncing that wrong. Quella, it means source. It is the German word for source. Thus, Q becomes the abbreviation. And Q was hypothesized to be a sayings document. So Matthew sits down to write his gospel, and he uses Mark as the source. Remember, we went from the synoptic problem to source criticism. Matthew uses Mark's gospel as the basis for his narratives, And he uses the document now called Q as the source for his sayings material. And if anybody else is thinking about the the now deceased rock singer 
A prince, yeah. The uh, document now known as Q. Luke sits down to write his gospel, and he has Mark's narrative, uses that as his source, and he also, like Matthew, has Q, and he uses that as his primary source for the sayings material. And, and then each of them, Matthew and Luke, have at least one additional source that explains the material that is unique to them, the sayings, the discourse material that is unique to them. That is what's called source criticism. The result is called the documentary hypothesis for obvious reasons. You start out with a synoptic problem. How do we explain the pattern of similarities and differences? Um, We look at behind the Gospels, if you will. We peek through and critically, um, analytically examine what's there, and we come up um, with source criticism. We see that they had sources, and we come up then with the documentary hypothesis, a hypothesis to explain the pattern of similarities and differences. And the documentary hypothesis says, basically, it's, it's pretty straightforward, that Mark was the source for Matthew and Luke's narrative material. Q was the source for their sayings material. And that is the only way, those two features are the only way to explain the similarities between Mark and Matthew and Luke regarding narratives and between Matthew and Luke regarding sayings. There must have been a common sayings document to explain the similarities, the strong similarities between Matthew and Luke. Hey, again, they wrote at opposite ends of the Roman Empire. They wrote decades apart, and yet they're word for word in some of this. And then each of them, Matthew and Luke, had a source for sayings material that was unique to them, and that explains uh, the variations between them in discourse in sayings material. Okay, if that blows you away, uh, join the club. It sure blew me away when I encountered it as a young Bible college student. I think it was probably in my junior year, maybe my senior year, when in a, a study on biblical theology, all of this came up. And, and I have done a very cursory explanation. Like I said, I opened the door. I've thrown open this door and given you a quick look on the inside, and I've done that with only verbal and referred to the chart that is on our Facebook page. There is lots more because as often happens in this kind of um, area, a a handful, I mean, I'm talking two or three guys in Germany, uh, sketched this out. The next generation of scholars said, okay, but wait a minute, let's take a look at the unique material in Matthew, and let's take a look at the unique material in Luke. And they came up with uh, with additional features. So, for example, they looked at Matthew and his unique material, and they hypothesized on what sources he had. Where did they come from? Did they come from 
Palestine? Did they come from the area of Judea? Were they characteristic of Roman expressions? And this sort of ballooned until after a while. You don't just have Mark and Q. You've got Q, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you've got other things going on. And Luke is over here doing this and the hypotheses grow and grow and grow. So again, it's a very simplified um, uh, explanation of what Q is about. What's, what's noteworthy is that this became accepted. That What happened is everybody said, well, obviously, look at the work these guys have done. This is stellar. This is brilliant. This is how it happened. That the documentary hypothesis is not just one of, but the only way to explain the, uh, the pattern of similarities and differences between the Gospels. And it, 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 uh, what, it migrated from Europe, from Germany into Europe and from Europe to the United States. And this became the norm. And if you pick up a book that was published anything more than 25 years ago, from let's say 1900 to uh, maybe the year 2000, and you look at what it says about the Gospels, it will be the documentary hypothesis. It will talk about Q. It became the norm. It became the accepted view for how we got our Gospels. That's how quickly this spread. Now, this made some people uncomfortable. I don't know if it makes you uncomfortable. When I first heard it, something didn't sit quite right about all of this. So here's what I want you to do. First, I want you to, if you use a study Bible, I want you to take a look at the introduction, that section above Matthew, and see if you find any hint in that study Bible's description of the Gospel of Matthew and any hint or reference to the documentary hypothesis as we've discussed it. Do the same thing with Mark and Luke. Or if you've got hanging around your house a commentary or any article about the Gospels, see if the documentary hypothesis shows up. I'm going to bet that depending on how old your study Bible is or how old your commentary is, you will read something about Q, about the documentary hypothesis. And it, it may not be as open, as overt as this has been, but after our discussion here, you may recognize it in what you read. Secondly, the second thing I want you to do is to make sure you listen to the second part of Q is for Q, because we're going to take our own critical look, this time at the documentary hypothesis, and see how it holds up and see what, what it says, what its implications are for our view of Scripture. With that, let's take a break, go get a cup of coffee or whatever, but let's go on to part two.